This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on Bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. So my guest on today's show is Chamal Izel, founder of Change Please, a social enterprise that empowers the homeless community to rebuild their lives with its hand up, not a handout model. The organization helps people get off the streets, training them to become coffee baristas and eventually supporting them back into the workplace in similar roles. Change Please assists its trainees with accommodation and mental well-being and pays the UK's living wage. Its coffee is award-winning, receiving Good Taste Awards in 2017 and 2018 and the Coffee Food Quality Award in 2018. The organization won the prestigious Shiva's Venture Award, which recognizes entrepreneurs who are solving the world's biggest social and environmental issues. And Sir Richard Branson even named it his startup of 2018. Pretty impressive stuff. So on today's episode, we're obviously taking a quick detour from our typical focus on investment markets and turning to something that is very important to us here at Bearings, and that is supporting the communities where we live and work. And before we get to that conversation, I've asked Aaron Brandstrom to join me. Aaron is not only chief of staff for the executive office for our chairman and CEO, Tom Fink, but she also heads up Bearing Social Impact Initiative. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Great. So can you tell us just what is Bearing's social impact. Bearing social impact is how we as an organization and employees gather together and mobilize to make a positive impact in our local community. This includes corporate grants, volunteering, and employee giving and matching. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a very comprehensive approach to philanthropy and impacting our communities. When did this all kick off for our listeners' benefit? This has been part of our culture and who we are at Bearings for several years, but this initiative, really focused initiative, really got off the ground this May. It's been an exciting few months and was followed by our first global month of service in June where our associates globally went out into the local communities. The momentum has been amazing to watch and it's really just building. So we can't wait to see what's next. Yes, I totally agree. And I think uh, you and your team have done an amazing job capturing the energy and spirit and inspiring people because everybody around this firm, it seems, is wearing blue t-shirts on almost a daily basis. And tell us what the blue t-shirts are. The blue t-shirts is a really a signifier saying that our associates are going out in the community today to do something that's going to have a positive impact, whether that's volunteering or mentoring or serving on a board. However they engage, it's really up to them and what their passion is. Yeah. And they, I can tell you from experience, they are everywhere. And I will be in one later this week, which I'm really looking forward to. Transitioning to our conversation conversation here with Jamal and talking about Change Please. What do you think it was about Jamal and Change Please that made them an organization that Bearings really wanted to partner with? So at Bearings, we're committed to helping and partnering with organizations who advance economic and social mobility. Change Please is the epitome of that. And Jamal's passion and enthusiasm for this cause is part of the reason that we engaged. Change Please is really focused on uplifting our homeless community and giving them the resources that they need to reenter their workforce, find housing, to set them up for success in the future. 
And that's how we really want to partner in our local communities. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he and his team there are doing some really amazing stuff. So, well, thank you so much. And I appreciate you stopping by and helping me to tee up this conversation. And without further ado to our listeners, please enjoy this conversation with Chamali Zell, founder and CEO of Change, please. All right, Jamal Izell, welcome to the show. My absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So excited to uh, to have you here. So excited to talk about Change Police. Um, it's such a cool organization. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to learn more about it. But um, maybe for our listeners who don't know a lot about Change Police, um, can you describe the organization to me and tell me what it is you do? Absolutely. So we're a social business that uses coffee to tackle homelessness. So, you know, we've whether you're in London, Manchester, New York, LA, Charlotte, you know, we all walk past people in the streets that are homeless. And sure. it's really difficult to know what to do in that situation or even to kind of understand whether that person is even homeless and, you know, how mm-hmm. to kind of react with that yep. person. And what we do is find the people that are ready to go into employment, to come out of homelessness. And um, we train them to be speciality level baristas, so the highest possible level. Hmm. We provide housing in 10 days, a bank account, a living wage job. So that means that they're fully employed with us and and we're able to kind of bring them back into society through employment. And then probably the most important part is to offer therapy support. So that really tackles the root problem of why that Mm. person became homeless. Was it a bereavement, a divorce, couldn't see their children because of a divorce or a military veteran or a lady who was a victim of domestic abuse, whatever that core reason is or that that pain point Mm -hmm. and use therapy to kind of, you know, find a way out for them from that challenge and then provide them with a future job after six months. Yeah. So typically it's a stepping stone of bringing people back into society yep. and, and not being on the streets where the problem is perpetuated and they, they continue to get worse and turn to drugs and alcohol. So it's a job first solution as opposed to waiting for this miraculous housing first model to sure, kind of sure. come and lift someone out of their problem. Wow, that's a great description. And it's quite admirable work that you and your your team are doing. I'm kind of interested in hearing a little bit about how you got into this and your origin story or the origin story of Change Please. So how did, and I understand that you kind of came from, you know, life as a corporate worker in in the city. Um, So how did you get from there to, you know, being a leader in social entrepreneurship and starting this great organization? Yes, I used to work in London in in finance. Um, i I was doing what I thought was my dream job. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely loved it. And then over time, over the course of three or four years, I started to realize actually, you know, you're, you're aiming towards great bank balance, sure. um, loads yeah. of assets and so on and so forth, which is great. It's everything I ever dreamed of. My parents were immigrants and, you know, having money and, and financial security was the way we valued success because mm-hmm. they didn't have any. And they sacrificed a lot to put me and my sister through private education. Mm. And it got to a point where I started to realize, well, I'm not, I'm not, happy I'm not waking up happy every morning and what's missing what's this real kind of thing that I'm working towards and that just didn't sit well with me. And over time, actually, sorry, my partner, she she was working for the NHS in the UK. She okay. took a gap year. I was joining her on different trips, and one of those was in Vietnam. Hmm. And we were traveling through Vietnam. We were going from Ho Chi Minh City up to the center of Vietnam on this kind of 18-hour bus journey. Um, 18 it was hours? Two, 18 hours. Ooh. They love their bus journeys in <laughs> Vietnam. Um, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning. There was probably one or two seats left on the bus. I was sitting on my own, and... 
an American traveller jumped onto the bus, sat next to me. Mm. I pretended to be asleep because I was just exhausted. <laughs> um, and he just wanted to get chatting sure. and uh, full of beans. And um, I said, look, I'm not happy with my job. I'm just, you know, it's, it's got to be more than, than just the money and the assets and that I'm building. And he said, look, if you're not happy with your life, yeah. you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, okay. looking back on your life, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy going to be when yeah. you pass away? Who's going to remember you and for what? Ultimately, have you left the world in a better place? Mm-hmm. And I just went from being half asleep to wide awake thinking, wow, I'm actually quite a bad person. This whole journey has been about me. Hmm. Um, if this bus crashed right now, then the only people who really care would be my immediate friends and family and probably my bank manager or my my insurance broker. And that was it. There's no legacy. There's right, nothing. I'm just right. vanishing. That's my yeah. my existence is forgotten. Yeah. And that was that was kind of quite alarming really. It was it was I was 29 at the time. A couple of weeks later still in Vietnam, we went to this place in Vietnam called Hoi An. It's kind of on the coast, in the center. And we went to this silent tea house whilst there, which was a tea, tea house that was run by deaf uh, mute ladies huh. who came together, didn't have any other, any other opportunity in that village and created this beautiful silent tea house where the only rule is that you're silent. And you, it's an amazing quality tea, amazing quality product. And it was full of people. And all you could hear is the kind of the running water in a Japanese garden. And That's so interesting. That's kind of hard to imagine just because it's the complete opposite of every coffee shop we're used to sitting in, whether we're in the UK or in the US. Um, but exactly. the idea is quite, um, quite interesting. And in those environments that you, you mentioned, everything's controlled from mm-hmm. the sound to the, um, to, to the music that's played, the ambience, the kind of energy that you feel. And in here, it was just stripped back. Right. And it was just about being in that environment of those ladies who... Were, you know, and you were living in their space essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was a commercial business. It wasn't some charity, sure. do-gooding polystyrene cup kind of um, church tea yep, coffee. Yep. It was something that was commercially competitive. And then I left and said, "Right, I'm going to set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London." Okay, and then kind of realised I don't like tea. I don't like uh, silence. <laughs> Being I, quiet, yeah. I hate I hate Clapham. <laughs> which, um, and then. This idea came to me. I used to in I used to rent my properties to, to local councils and government in the UK okay. that rented my properties out to people that were homeless. Oh. And I only did that non-altruistically. It was because they got the government guaranteed the revenue. Okay. So there be, there was no void payments for me. Yep. So it was a perfect opportunity financially. Mm-hmm. But I realized actually we were already renting to people that were homeless. Mm-hmm. If we could find a way where they were um given jobs at the same time, that made the whole relationship sustainable. Mm. And those individuals were not reliant on government, on handouts, on society to kind of prop them up. Okay. But they were actually self-dependent. Mm-hmm. And I just realized employment is the way out. And the more we looked into it, we found that 44% of people in the UK that were homeless were ready to work, wanted to work and come out of the problem that they're in. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the 56%, some wanted to work but weren't ready and the rest, you know, probably I think it was about 10, 12% actually didn't want to work and weren't ready. Okay. So okay. we just thought we need to find that 40, those 44% of people yeah. before they turn into the 56% and they're too difficult to help. Right. I came back to London and, and I saw a homeless person in Paddington on the Heathrow Express yep. holding up a cardboard sign saying, change please. Ah. Sat with me. And then yeah. a few weeks later, we went sort to this... Sort of a double entendre, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 
And then we went to this Banksy exhibition uh, where Banksy's got a piece of street art with a homeless person with a hand out saying, um, graffitied on the wall saying, keep your coins, I want change. And I love a good pun and that was the double <laughs> entendre that um, wow. we went back to work, yeah. um, handed in my notice two weeks later wow. and then started this journey. Good for you. Good for you. That's really exciting. What a, what a cool uh, origin story. I'm happy I asked you. Yeah. So the connection, you've made the connection there with with homelessness. But tell me a little bit more about the problem of homelessness and kind of what's drawn you to that. Yeah. So the problem of homelessness is really broad. And that's actually what's quite interesting. You know, I see a lot of social businesses that work with people who have got um, autism or they've got some mental health issues or learning difficulties or physical disabilities and they're quite specific challenges which need specific support um, whereas homelessness is such a broad and preventable challenge mm-hmm. um, it could be anyone who's got you know a we, we've seen people that used to be accountants yeah. and the one lady she was involved in a car crash she lost her leg ended up in a wheelchair became severely depressed mm. and ended up on the streets mm-hmm. and 20 years mm-hmm. later she's now um, actually interviewing to be our new CFO you know? <laughs> wow um, that's awesome that one incident caused um, a chain of events yeah. which were unpredictable yeah. another guy recently we met who used to run his own consulting business in Canary Wharf um, and he got divorced couldn't see his children again became severely depressed lost his job wow. and ended up homeless so you've we see so many people who have got amazing natural skill sets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and abilities and because of one chain of events end up without a home, mm-hmm. end up in poverty, and then that spirals. The longer right. that person, a three, you know, if they start spending more than three months out on the streets yep. or, or homeless, that's when we really start to see a speed of degradation from their mental health, from the way they look, from mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and when they try to get out of that after three months is super difficult. Right. So finding people early. Yep. And being preventative before it becomes severe, rough sleeping, like you might see in LA and Skid Row and and, um, a lot in the UK that's quite Mm -hmm. hidden, Mm -hmm. um, is for me a very interesting proposition because there's people who have amazing skill sets. And if we can direct them towards a different path, and I believe firmly that there's, you know, everyone has at some point in their life reached a junction where they can either go left towards kind of a downward spiral or mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. just take a choice to go right yeah. and that is one of the hardest decisions that they'll ever make yeah. and going right could be where everything starts to kind of improve and, and develop getting to those people when they're in a point where they're able to accept going right yep. is the opportunity that we're looking for got it got it well kudos to you for identifying that um i think Obviously, there's such a stigma that exists with homelessness. And I think there's perceptions that people have, you know, when you live in a big city like London or even a smaller city like Charlotte, we pass by homeless people every day. Obviously, it's a massive problem for the for the people who are homeless themselves. It's a massive problem for the cities. And it's something that I think we, just citizens, kind of struggle with. Like, how should I deal with this personally? Like, yeah. you know, I want to help, but I also... You know, there's probably some level of guilt when I walk by a homeless person. And so I think the idea that these are people from all walks of life that encountered a a difficult circumstance 
that sent them down this chain of events. That's that's a really important concept because I think you might have associations which involve drugs and alcohol, and I'm sure that's many times involved. It's a lot more than that that can get people in these really difficult situations. Yeah, I mean, drugs and alcohol are the first things that's mentioned, but actually the statistics clearly show that drugs and alcohol are what's used as a way of coping after they've already become homeless. Right, right. So if you allow the problem to go three months, six months, then, I mean, if I was sleeping out on London streets where it's freezing in winter, I would do whatever I can to survive. Sure, you know, sure. You, of course, would. And, and some people, the cheapest and easiest thing is to kind of depend on substances to mm-hmm, be able to cope. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is that becomes a reflection of um, people that are generally homeless. Yeah. And then it becomes all too easy to kind of put people into a box and yep, say, actually, yep. it's someone else's problem. I don't need to deal with it. I can just keep walking on. I, 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 it's fine to just keep on walking on past mm-hmm, because they might mm-hmm. spend the money on drugs and alcohol. Right. And I've done that for, you know, 30 years of my life. And it's still, I, on the way here, I passed four or five people. And I, I didn't have that perception, but I, you can't help in right, some instances. Right. But the biggest challenge is fighting that perception. And having the courage as an individual to see who that person was previously or Mm -hmm. potentially what contribution they can have back into society. That's the opportunity that, um, and as being as a typical entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, opportunity is something I love and and, um, just finding that opportunity within people that's hidden and is wasted in our society is something that really excites me to kind of, you know, rebuild people and and give them an opportunity to come back in. Yeah, that's really cool. So tell me about, I'm interested in kind of hearing about maybe your typical employee's kind of journey. So you mentioned it's critical to hopefully identify people early on. I'm interested in kind of how you identify those people, but I'm also interested in kind of what that life cycle kind of looks like of employment, how the kind of housing support and the mental health support, all that kind of works. So I don't know if it's easier to give an example or two of that, but tell us just about how that process actually works. Yeah. So the first start, the, the start of the process is finding the right people. And we do, um, we, re- we receive referrals from local charities, uh, national charities who spend a lot of time understanding who those individuals are, what their weaknesses are, what their challenges are, and they then recommend people to us that they feel are potentially suitable. Okay. That's phase one. That's the first filter. The second filter is we interview that person to see if we feel they're suitable. Mm-hmm. The third step is probably the most crucial part of the selection phase, where initially they were doing a one-month selection where we, they were selling a street magazine called The Big Issue, and we received a weekly report on that person's timekeeping, their okay. reliability, their customer interaction, and their money management, four key criteria. Okay. If they got 75 out of 100, then they became our employees, and and then I'll explain the next step. But they became our employees. Now we've changed that because we realize there's a lot more we need to look for than just that one-month selection. Right. You know? So we're now changing it to be a three-month selection where it's very much skill-based. It's looking at context-dependent skills, so how they perform in a coffee bar, what's their hospitality skills like, are they on time? Being able to take a skill... Mm-hmm. That we've taught them and translate that into a into a working environment. Okay. Um, because ultimately, our role here isn't just to kind of give people a short term prop and lift them up; it's to move them on and get them into sustainable employment. Typically, six months after right, they've left right. us. So, so it's, that, it's ironic in a little bit of ways that, contrary to most businesses out there, you're kind of grooming your best employees to leave you ultimately. Exactly. I mean, it's the hardest thing. You, we see so many of our best staff leave us, but mm-hmm. that's with a sense of pride as opposed to sadness. Sure. Um, sure. And 
after the three months, there's two routes that they go. They either become our full-time employees where there's an opportunity to do so, or we work with a huge amount of contract caterers like Compass, Sodexo, Aramarks, Baxter mm-hmm, Stories, mm-hmm. and they are desperate for baristas, um, especially highly skilled baristas, which our staff are. Mm. And they all pay a living wage because they have to contractually. So the ones that are ready within three months, we then support them into employment to go and work um, with our contract catering partners into sites like a UBS or a HSBC or whichever locate mm-hmm. one of our partners, KPMG, for example. Right. There's a part in between where people maybe are ready to come, go into employment, and they need a bit more time. So we approach local coffee bars and we pay half of their wage for our trainees to work in those local coffee bars. Okay. So essentially you're getting that and they pay the rest of their wage, the coffee bars. So you're they're getting someone for, you know, five, six pounds an hour sure. and we're paying the rest to kind of um, help that person get practical employment, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. So what do you think people the people who come through your organization ultimately get? What's the kind of long term effect uh, for them? So Recently, we hired a guy who used to beg outside a tube station in London, and he said to me that his experience went from holding out his hand, Mm -hmm. asking somebody for money, to then standing behind a coffee machine where someone's coming to him, asking him for a cappuccino, a latte, Mm -hmm. not knowing his background, not knowing where he's been, Mm -hmm. and the sense of self-worth, self-belief, confidence that he's giving some somebody something that they want as opposed to asking them for something that yep. they actually don't yep. want to give him is a complete reversal. And that sense of feeling that they're coming back into society is a massive building block yep. of self-worth. And if someone keeps walking past you and not supporting you, that's ultimately telling you that you're, you're you know, they can't help you and you're, you're worthless, you mm-hmm. know? So mm-hmm. it really is, you know, we've had people who they were, you know, one guy recently was an amazing artist um, painting on the streets and we gave him, got him graphic design training and he became a graphic designer. Oh, awesome. um, but then the the stepping stone into the work of being a graphic designer well, was was being a barista. That gave him that, those kind of life skills, that mm-hmm. uh, turning up on time, that sense of achievement, yep. which then allowed him to build, to use that, to get that kind of work experience through actually what he's good at. That's really cool. That's, I think, I feel like that sense of identity, I think at any stage, you're talking about someone who's homeless or not, I think this kind of idea of identity, you know, I often see people really struggle when they lose their jobs because you're so tied to the value that you're contributing to society and, and how you kind of see yourself. Okay, I see myself as this finance person that adds value in such and such a way and these people need me. I think when that gets taken away from you in some way, shape, or form, it's really, really difficult for people. So I think that this seems like just a great way to help people get back that sense of identity and that sense of purpose and the sense of adding value into the world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We, we met the uh, May of London two, three months ago and the word that he kept using was dignity. You know, it's giving people back dignity of who they are, a reflection of who they used to be. But I think as well, you know, as you mentioned, the word identity is, is crucial. Work is fundamental in in acting as a mirror of who we are and, and our value. And this this is act as an initial building block. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not just your employees who are benefiting from this. It's also the consumers. So tell me about that. I noticed that 
your messaging is not necessarily all about, you know, you're supporting the homeless by buying coffee here. You're actually, you actually have award-winning, great tasting coffee, I know, because my colleague and I just visited one of your sites uh, down the street here. We met a wonderful gentleman named Marco from Colombia. By the way, thank you for having iced Americano on the <laughs> menu. We Americans appreciate that. Yeah. But tell me about just your thought process around how you're kind of facing off with consumers and this idea of offering a great product. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we've come across is that perception that because you're delivering a social product or a product that has social impact attached to it, there's automatically going to be a compromise in quality, taste, convenience, price. And, you know, in a supermarket in the UK, one of our products is the only coffee on the shelf which has won multiple great, or even one great taste award, mm. which is the highest level of kind of accreditation you can get for the quality of your product. Mm. And yet people think that there's going to be a compromise. It's not going to taste as good because we're doing this social impact. Sure. So then we did a bit of a, a change where we changed the packaging to not mention homelessness on the front at all and just be all about the quality of the product and about the taste and the flavor profiles and the sales just shot up. Hmm. And it was only on the back of the pack that people learned more about what we did. You know, our consumers are what we call slacktivists. They want to be activists. They want to do good, but they're slack about it. Okay. They, it has to be easy for yep. them to do good, but there can't be any compromise in that process. So very much our attitude towards messaging towards our consumers is first and foremost about the quality, the price, and the convenience mm -hmm. of the offering. Mm -hmm. And then now it's on the back of the pack or the back of the cup, you then learn about more about what we do. Yep. Um, we don't want to lead with that anymore because we've realized only around 5% of consumers will pay, will go out of their way to come and track down a socially minded product. Mm -hmm. We even moved one of our sites by 20 meters and the previous customers knew where the site was, but that was just the limit of how far that they would go to kind of continue supporting us. Mm. Um, we increased our price by around 15, 20%. And then that was almost the limit of how much people would support mm. us. Mm. So it has to be as competitive as what's on the market no compromise yep. and the social element is a bonus. Yeah. Otherwise, people will not buy into it. Okay. Um, we've just got our coffee on to a huge airline and one of the issues when we first met some very senior people was this is a very laudable thing you're doing but does it taste good? Right, and we see right. that every day. Yeah. It's kind of, so it's first and foremost about convincing people about the quality of the product yep, yep. and we overdo that um, but we convince them about the quality and then it's the afterthought, the bonuses about the social impact. Yeah, I think that intuitively makes a lot of sense. I think that it's a tricky balance you're trying to strike because I think a lot of times people think about that that latte or that cup of coffee almost as like a small luxury item in their life, right? You have big players like Starbucks have tried to really play on that and they're willing to, you know, charge a, a healthy price for that because people are, you know, maybe going through a long work day, but there's this five minutes where they can go out and treat themselves and get this luxury item. So I think the idea of leading with the fact that, hey, you're not compromising here on quality and treating yourself is a great idea. And and if people can also contribute to a great cause while they're doing that, I think that intuitively makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think everyone says, you know, we've won a lot of awards for being uh, an amazing social business. Mm -hmm. We won the Chivas Venture last year to be named the world's best social enterprise. That's awesome. So that, that, no, those are those things are, are great. However... I don't believe we're a 
I don't like to see us as a social business. I just like to see us as a modern business. This is how business is developing. This is where the future of business is. Where, you know, I every couple of weeks speak to people from who are graduates going into a new bank or a new law firm sure. to university students, to college students, to people at school, to kids at school. And the younger the age group, the more they just expect that they're going to be social entrepreneurs. Yep. Yep. You never really hear people talking about that age group, you know, I want to be a, an entrepreneur and just go out and make loads of money. They all genuinely mm-hmm. want to be social mm-hmm. entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and they see that's part of their future. And even now millennials are becoming too old for the category that we're speaking about. <laughs> yeah. But they are incredibly purpose-driven. Yep. And believe me, the next generation that's coming through are kind of tenfold that. Yeah. So I see ourselves as not a novelty social business that's yep. just yep. doing good and it's laudable, but this is genuinely going to be how modern business, future business yep. is going You're to be. You're giving us a little preview yeah. of what how business itself is going to be redefined. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's great. So I'm sure not everything in your journey has gone exactly as expected. I'm sure there's been bumps in the road, things that have gone wrong. What are some of those big challenges that you've encountered along the way? So the first is breaking that perception around quality. And, you know, you're in a very competitive environment in coffee. So it's very easy to kind of fall into the trap of just relying on your social messaging Mm -hmm. to kind of draw in customers. And we learned that very quickly. I'm going to reel off about 10 challenges here. Another (laughs) one was... You know, automatically you're, when we started, you're thinking that by providing somebody with a job and housing, that's enough. That's that's everything they need right, to kind of right. come back into society. Whereas what you're doing is finding people that have been on the streets for quite a while. So their immediate focus is about getting off the streets. Sure. So you, after say two or three months, we were finding people who were off the streets, but then that honeymoon period was over and they became lost. And they, some people were developing gambling addictions. Some people were turning into old vices because now they had money to be able to do what, mm-hmm. to do things that really they shouldn't be doing. But the reason for that was we weren't giving them structure on how to plan for who they are now, who the new person is, and just have the reality that they've come out of homelessness and now what's the future look like for them. Right. So we brought in clinical psychologists who became full-time occupational therapists who really started to give those individuals goals and targets and and help plan for the next five years, you know. When I was working, my focus was buying another property or it might be for someone to buy their first property or to go on holiday or to buy a new car. You know, every we all have in the back of our mind some sort of purpose or reason mm-hmm. for why we're mm-hmm. working. Whereas you're now put into employment and you didn't have that. So that was a huge learning curve where we realized, you know, it's it has to be more than just providing. And that's yeah. what a therapy support is crucial. Okay. So that was a huge challenge. Another one was traditional... Um, you know, finding funding, CapEx, um, marketing your product in the right way. So it's finding the right balance of who you are, mm-hmm. which all, mm-hmm. all small businesses, startups struggle with. And it's just for us being a huge learning curve that actually you're finding a balance between running a commercial business and being yeah. pragmatic about that. Right. But then also at the same time, where the funds are being used is going to help people. And how you then essentially run two sides of business. One is a not-for-profit side and one is a for-generating-profit side, which is then reinvesting that money to help people. So you're essentially running two businesses in one. Hmm. Um, and that's obviously quite challenging in its own right. way. Right. And I'm sure you had to build an organization around you to try to tackle all these challenges along the way. Exactly. So. And actually, a couple of things actually I'm working for at the moment is 
taking the DNA that we've developed in the UK as a CEO to then we're opening in Australia in three weeks. And our first site, we're going to be then planning another 16 locations by middle of next year. Awesome. And we're opening in the US. But then what, what structure are we then replicating in in those in those markets? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. do we redefine um, who we are in those markets? And essentially rebuilding a new organization, finding local managing directors, finding local partners. That is also quite a big challenge. And from a personal perspective, my development's been very interesting. You know, you start as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur slash social entrepreneur, and then automatically as you grow at speed, you, you become a CEO. And the skill sets inherently of a social entrepreneur or an entrepreneur to being a CEO are completely different. Mm. One is about risk-taking. It's about taking opportunities. It's about growing quickly. It's about surviving. Whereas a CEO is more about structure. It's about building. It's about foundations. It's about culture. It's about growth in a more sustainable way. So in some respects, it's, it's that balance between switching off what comes naturally and changing spots to then be a better CEO slash do you then bring somebody in who sure, has sure. that experience who can potentially grow the business twice as fast? Yep, yep. And I think, you know, I've learned a combination of those and tried not to suffer from a founder syndrome and be a, a CEO that's quite forward-thinking and strategic and bring in MDs and operations managers and directors that are essentially running the business and developing, delivering that growth mm-hmm, in itself. Mm-hmm. So that self-journey for me has been a really interesting journey. And, and you know, especially working with individuals from Bearings and and I'm not just saying this as being part of a Bearings podcast, but mm-hmm. you know, the um everyone from Tom, the the CEO down to kind of people in local markets has been incredibly supportive in, in helping me develop in that journey as well to kind of be a better CEO and yeah. build structure around who I am, support with with HR, with finance, with mentoring our new MD. It's just been an incredible relationship that's helped me that's overcome great. the challenges. That's great. That's great to hear. And I think that's really interesting context because I think maybe as as outsiders, we don't necessarily think about how your own personal role has, has is changing so much and, and what that means, but that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think... What you're probably experiencing is is what any founder of a successful business experience is coming from being an outsider, being a being an entrepreneur, having an idea, like launching a business to okay, wow, I, I manage an organization and people depend on me and I need to be a leader and all that kind of stuff and all that goes goes with that. So that's great context. You know, speaking of the partnership, I know that we're very honored at Bearings to partner with Change Please. Tell me from your perspective what we're trying to achieve collectively together? So we've worked with major international banks, law firms, without mentioning any names, you know, they've, we've had good relationships. But genuinely, the relationship we've had with Bearings has been the most valuable by far. It's been absolutely sincere, huge amounts of integrity and genuine want to support us as an organization, not just in... Um, achieving external goals, but looking at us as an as internally as an organization and helping us build from the inside, which is things that aren't seen externally. Mm-hmm. It's not the flashy new site which you know you can then talk shout about externally. It's sure. about helping us develop culturally as an organization internally, which are things that you know externally you know bearings wouldn't get any mention or, or external kind of recognition in in, in their mm-hmm. support for us. So that as a building block to develop a relationship has and trust has for me been fundamental. 
Yeah. And then it's ju- it's been a constant development in our relationship about what's next. How can we support you? Do you want to grow internationally? How can we be part of that journey to help you yeah. grow sustainably? What resources do you need? What support do you need? And I've never experienced a sense of sincerity and integrity as much as I've seen with any, you know, with Bearings as, as a, compared to any other partner that we worked with. And and it, it's, it's just been phenomenal. Also from a financial perspective, we've had a lot of financial support. And in terms of a wider picture, it's about developing a sustainable international organization that represents impact through doing day-to-day business Mm -hmm. and showing a representation of what business can be. And those those values that we have are, from what I see, completely shared by Bearings. And I'm genuinely honored to be working with with you guys. That's that's awesome. I cannot take credit personally for any of it, but it makes me proud to be a Bearings employee to to hear that that that's how the partnership has developed from your perspective. And and it's also that culture's been shared straight from Tom, CEO, all the way down through different teams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we met him, the, you know, all the way to the local people that work with us, you just see exactly that same culture. Yeah, and for me, yeah. that's been a big learning curve in terms of when we're developing that, and mentioned previously about the international growth, when we're developing that international growth, how can you maintain a sense of culture and values right. which are coherent, but also... Um, bought into by your staff. Yep. And, you know, meeting Tom and meeting the teams that report into him, for me, has been a great representation of what I want to build as a CEO. Yep. Um, and that's been fantastic for me to kind of learn and, and be partly mentored by that from from the outside. That's great. Yeah, we're, we're lucky to have Tom. He does a great job and he's kind of sets the standard for us from a cultural perspective. And obviously being a large global organization, culture is something that we strive to to build and maintain every day, but there's there's challenges along the way. But I think having that kind of Guiding light, that kind of true north in terms of leadership is a critical part of it. So, Jamal, what's next, I guess, for Change Please? You talked a little bit about international expansion, but as you look out over the years to come, kind of where do you see the business going, yourself going? What's kind of on the horizon here for you? Yeah, so we want to be the fourth biggest coffee brand in the UK. We supply into many, many corporate offices. If someone's buying coffee already and as long as we can match the price and the convenience and the quality, then why not do good at the same time? It's just an easy win-win. So supplying into offices on an international basis is a win-win for us. Opening sites on high streets as well is fantastic because what we want people to see is when they're walking past somebody who's homeless on the streets and then looking past them, then you know a couple of months later, seeing that person serving you coffee in one of our coffee bars. Mm-hmm. And that change of perception from that person you walk past to then who just served you and understanding the story behind them could not be a better representation of how to change perceptions around homelessness, right. in my opinion. So opening sites on the high street is, is, is crucial, but also that growth uh, internationally. So in the US, we're focusing specifically on women and children that are homeless because uh, okay. there's a massive epidemic. It's really a huge issue. Mm. And uh, in Australia, it's focusing on people who are indigenous and who are homeless, especially in Western Australia. So the first site's going to be in Perth. Okay. And it's about breaking into and disrupting markets, whether it's disrupting the sense of quality slash impact paradigm, which we discussed earlier, um, and how you can do good and and have quality at the same time. So disrupting that, Mm -hmm. disrupting how coffee business can be done. We pay living wage 
Our cups are made out of plants, not plastic. We convert all of our waste coffee grounds into biofuel. Our coffee comes from farms that support women who are victims of domestic abuse or people that were landmine mm. victims. The coffee's roasted by people that are homeless. If one of the large coffee high street change replicated one of those things, yep. that would have an international impact immediately. Wow. So it's about disrupting that space at the same time, but also disrupting how business can be a force for good without there being compromised on the bottom line. So if you're a for-profit business, can you be a profit for purpose? Can you convince shareholders that actually this is part of our DNA as an organization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to being a byproduct of ticking a CSR box? Yeah, yeah. Um, and all those disruptive mechanisms are examples that we want to kind of be leading in. Yeah. And um, that's something that I'm very proud of that we've done so far. And we're going to have more international impact if we achieve those disruptive elements than just the direct people that we can support sure, sure. on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep, that makes a ton of sense. I look forward to uh, enjoying a change, please, coffee in, uh, in in the States at some point. Just as we finish up here, as you think about, and, and I think a lot of what you just covered is actually quite inspirational, to be honest, for people. But as you think about what you uh, would want to leave our listeners here with today, is there any kind of messages or anything else that you would want to kind of leave people with today? Yeah, I think for me, firstly, from a personal perspective and not change piece aside, it was the reason I'm doing this is obviously your kind of self-legacy and looking back on your life at the age of 90 and thinking about what you've achieved. But my guiding light is wanting to wake up every morning happy. And without being cheesy, and I'm not saying I do that, you know, even 50% of mornings, but I'm a lot closer than what I used to. Mm -hmm. And it's about trying to break the matrix of what we're used to on a day-to-day -day basis and having your having a purpose to what we're to what we're doing. Yeah, and for me, yeah. it's about feeling a sense of pride, but also knowing that I'm really genuinely hand on heart enjoying every day that I'm living. Yeah. And also, you know, I've had a son which is now six months old. Um Congrats. and you know, leaving a, a better world for him. Yeah. And you know, yeah. that's for me a personal ambition that I'm working towards. From a change please perspective, we're about changing perceptions and being disruptive. And the changing perceptions element, it goes way beyond coffee. This isn't about coffee. This isn't about homelessness. This is about, in our day-to-day -day life, what are we told to think? What are we told to believe? What constructs, what labels are we told to put on things which make it easier for us to get through our day-to-day? Our -day? And, and disrupt those thought processes to think about how we can make a difference and I think homelessness acts as a representation of that. The person that we walk past doesn't necessarily have to be a drug addict or an alcohol dependent, but they are fathers, brothers, sisters, mothers, you know, that are real humans that, for me, on a day-by-day -day basis, act as a real representation of labels and perceptions and essentially a representation to stop following the herd. You know, and for me, that's a great opportunity to kind of find those individuals and show how they can be disruptive and, and change in society. So it's about A, leaving a legacy and waking up happy and B, about changing perceptions, mm -hmm. beliefs and stereotypes because those stereotypes might make life a little bit easier, but they help perpetuate problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think those are all very admirable causes powerful messages, as I said, uh, inspirational, really. So thank you, Jamal. Really appreciate you taking the time today. I really appreciate your continued partnership with Bearings. I know we're all, you know, really proud to continue working with you. So thanks for all the 
the great work you're you're doing and, and your team's doing. And, and thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Right. The pleasure's all mine. Thanks, right. thanks. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.